0: You ever wonder how all that fish and tackle you see on the shelves in Sportsman's Warehouse gets there? Who designs it and where does it come from? How does it get tested and how do they prove its worth? We're going to talk about all that on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey y'all, Chad LaChance here. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. Of course, brought to you as always by the fine folks at Sportsman's Warehouse. Visit them at 136 stores nationwide or at sportsmans.com. Next time you need fishing, hunting, camping, shoes, or outdoor cooking gear. Speaking of gear, guys, yours truly just got back from one of my favorite weeks of the whole year. And in fact, that's why this podcast is a couple of days late, because I was late getting back and didn't get a chance to record it on Friday. So I uh, just got back from ICAS, the International Conference of Allied Sport Fishing Trades. It's basically where the entire fishing industry from around the world gets together in one giant room uh, and basically all of the tackle that's going to be on shelves in the coming year is dealt with in that building. And it's a combination of a lot of different components in the industry, ICAST is. It's not just, uh, or it's not open, I should say, to people of the general public. You have to be in the industry and credentialed of some sort to be able to get into iCast. And basically what that allows to happen is all of the Tackle stuff to be exposed to the industry buyers. And that's a big thing. In other words, the folks from from big box stores like my beloved Sportsman's Warehouse, all the way down to the mom and pop shops around the country, are all there, their buying teams are, to put together their product mix when it comes to fishing for the next year. They'll meet with all of the manufacturers there. Uh, so that's the second group of people that are there, which are manufacturers. So. Berkeley, Abu Garcia, any brand you've ever heard of in fishing, Lawrence Electronics, I mean, from Old Town kayaks and canoes all the way to all the different brands of clothing uh, to pretty much whatever you've seen in the fishing or ancillary products and related to in uh, fishing. Coolers from Otterbox and Yeti and all those people are all there. Uh, basically, all the people that manufacture tackle uh, most of which, for the record, you probably haven't heard of. The big, the big brands are are there, of course, and they have a big, giant amount of floor space. Berkeley, the Berkeley booth is ridiculously huge, as being one of the largest companies in fishing. But there's so many boutique companies there with all these crazy products that you may or may not ever end up seeing because they're very specialized are also there. So you have the buyers from all the mom and pops and, and big box stores and, and also the distributors or wholesalers, I should say. So what you may not be aware of is there's several different major distributors in the fishing business. Uh, they will also being there, be there filling their warehouses for the coming year so that the really small shops that don't order enough volume to order direct will also have access to the same product mixes. Um, The other thing is there besides them and the manufacturers you'll see is uh, media sales people. So those are people there trying to get, say, Berkeley, for instance, to buy advertising in their magazine or on their videos or whatever the case might be. And then you've got all the industry people that work with conservation organizations, uh, things like that. So then you're talking about Coastal Conservation uh, Association, Captains for Clean Water, the Jose Ojebe Memorial Foundation, um, you know, all the different organizations like that are on hand, as are all the major media people. So for instance, Bassmaster Magazine, Game and Fish Magazine, all of those people are on hand as well. And then you got guys like me. Uh, I have what they call a media editorial badge, so I am there to document what's going on. I'm not buying anything, I'm not selling anything, I'm there to document what's going on and bring it to you, the public. Okay, And that's what I've done for the last 15 years, uh, 16 years if you count 2020 when they didn't have the show, but it's been 16 years that I have attended iCast. And uh, so it's given me an interesting perspective as that show has changed over time. But really, what I do there uh, is secondary to just bringing you guys videos and product information and learning what I can about the new products so that I have the right information on, say, this podcast or Fishful Thinker television or any of the other content we produce. The other thing I'm doing there is meeting with the product development people who I work closely with, or some of whom I work closely with and some I don't, starting to look at things that they're considering bringing to market next year. So in other words, they'll be at ICAST the following year. So a full year ahead of before they debut in front of the public, in some cases, two or more years ahead of before they debut at the public. And the reason that I'm meeting with them there is so that i can provide whatever input they request for product testing and that's really where i'm headed to with the uh meat of this podcast so for a very long time now about 10 or 11 years now i have been on the official test team for several different companies uh to help them develop products partially because i have aerospace engineering background Uh, partially because I worked in fishing uh, retail at Sportsman's Warehouse for five years. So I have a pretty good idea about merchandising, product mixes, and more importantly, or most importantly, what does Joe Weekend Angler, who's the bread and butter of the fishing industry, what do they look for? What questions do they ask and what tackle are they consistently buying? So I have that aspect as well. And then I've been a fishing guide, a a multi-species fishing guide, I might add. I've hosted the TV show now for 15 years, and that's always been multi-species, multi-state, multi-technique, as well as uh, being a writer and a lifelong angler for both inshore and uh, and freshwater fishing. So in fly, fly tackle and spinning tackle. So from my standpoint, I have a diverse background. Uh, as well as some advanced education, uh, particularly on materials and design work. So it puts me in a unique position to be able to test uh, Tackle. And I also have an engineering kind of oriented mind. And so you put those things together. So I become a Tackle tester. So that's really what I wanted to talk most about and uh, and give you a little bit of behind the scenes of how that stuff happens. So there's a product that came to market was just exposed to the public at iCast this last week and i'm going to use that basically as a case study for kind of what goes on um, and how the products come to market and if you guys have questions on any of this stuff it's something i'm very passionate about and i would love to hear so you can hit us up emails at chat at com or ask on on facebook or instagram at fishful Thinker on either one of those and we're always glad to uh, to answer them so uh, the, the product I'm referencing is known as the Power Switch. It came out, was just made public. It was known as the Power Switch. I only just learned of it two weeks before ICAST that that's what its final name was going to be. Because what happens during the process is they give it a basically a code name. So all the way during the time that I started working on that beta a year ago, in other words, July of 2022, is when I started working with that bait, it had a secret name, and that way there's no chance of leaking. I have a, 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 as far as the name goes, I have a um, a NDA uh, or non-disclosure agreement on file with companies that I work with so that they can expose something to me, and it has legal recourse if I expose it to you, which is why you'll see me sometimes post with a lure blurred out. It's because I'm using that, that, uh, lure to catch whatever I need, but I can't show it to you or I'll be uh, in legal trouble with the folks that build that lure. So when I first saw this lure last year, it was, it came to me, first of all, it was clear. It's a soft plastic, uh, internally weighted, kind of a hybrid gliding jig. And the first versions of them I saw had, were clear. First of all, they had no, no colors, no coloration dyed into them because there's too early in the process for that. Um, second of all, they were in a variety of sizes. And the biggest thing they wanted for me, um, first of all, besides not showing them into anybody, is to use them for the specific application for which they are being designed for. And in the case of what came to be known as the power switch, the initial problem that was pointed out by anglers that led to the new product development, and this is a big, big step here, is. I have this new live sonar or forward facing sonar that's become all the rage in the last literally two or three years in the industry. It is absolutely blown up for walleye anglers kayak anglers, bass anglers, saltwater guys, everybody with a boat of any sort is using live or forward-facing sonar and now even ice fishing guys as well. And what we're learning is there's a lot more fish than the ones we catch that interact with our lure. And we're all learning that very, very quickly. In other words, we're finding out that we were getting a lot of follows. We're getting a lot of fish that completely disregard the lure when it comes by. Uh, just a whole bunch of scenarios where we're not catching them. And it became a almost a cutting edge or double-edged sword because I can see them. So I'm inclined to sit here and keep fishing for them. I can see them in real time, but I can't get them to bite. And you'll drive yourself crazy trying to get them to bite. And so the debate becomes, do I keep changing lures? Do I change the way I'm working this lure? Or do I need a lure that's more specifically designed to get these fish to bite? Or do I just go find other fish? And... That's the million-dollar thing all the way along right now. So the power switch was designed to address fish with more lure control that we can't get to bite. So rather than saying I'm going to change through eight different lures that will do eight different things, we're going to take one lure that I can make do eight different things so that I'm in total control of that lure at all costs. At all you know, all the time, no matter what, it's up to me as an angler. So what they had to do is not build too much of its own action into it, because if you do that, that forces the angler into fewer and fewer um, possible presentations. So if we put, let's say, a big paddle tail on it, well, now it's not going to sink in the same way as if if it didn't have that paddle tail. Conversely, if I if I swim it or whatever, I guess I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but the more action you build into a lure, the less control of it the angler has. And so the power switch has very little built-in action per se, but it has a very universal body design that responds well to a lot of different rod motions and line tensions. And so that comes down to internal weighting, the way it sort of hunts when you retrieve it. Does it, when you, does it, when it sinks, does it sink nose down or does it sink horizontally? Does it spiral? What does it do when it sinks? And what happens when the angler changes how it sinks? So in other words, If I throw it out and I give it complete slack line, how does it sink? Versus if I throw it out and I keep the line tight so that it sinks on tight line, it sinks completely different not all lures will do that and that's where the power switch's versatility comes in and again it comes down to the balance of the weighting system where the line tie point is um, the density for a given size uh, and obviously the shape itself of the body because the shape of the body dictates how water being a fluid dynamic situation flows around the lure and therefore pushes the lure in various directions and angles so when I first got the bait, it was clear, it was very, very basic, and it was more a matter of go out and make it do as many different things as you can. By then, a guy by the name of Dan Spangler and the rest of his crew and a whole bunch of others there uh, as well uh, at Berkeley have already tank tested it a lot of times. So they've videoed it in tanks. You can get below ground and look through the side of the tank and watch the thing being retrieved by an angler who's literally casting it with a rod and reel, same as you would into a long tank that's clear and can be seen from the side. They've already used computers to analyze the motion of it. Uh, They've tried every possible retrieve scenario that they can think of in terms of making it vertical or horizontal or everywhere in between and they've come up with a few basic sizes they feel like meet the right uh, definition of the sink rates versus size or in other words the density of the lure. So they've gotten all that. They've got it in the ballpark. And then it will come to a guy like me. They'll verify my NDAs on on form. I'll meet with the uh, actual bait engineers and designers. They'll explain to me what their best goal is with the bait or what they're thinking. And then I take them back to Colorado and I go fishing. And one of the key things they wanted out of me was um, durability testing. So I went to my home lake and see how many how many smallmouth bass can I catch on one of these baits before it's worn out? And long story short, I got well over 100 on one of them in the early testing, and the bait was still fishing fine. I'll be the first to admit that, that one of the eyeballs was missing. The body was roughed up a little bit, but it was still getting tons of bites. And, uh, and so I knew that the durability at that point was going to be fine. I also want to point out that I don't just test durability with one species of fish because that's important as well. Uh, Obviously trout have more teeth than smallmouth bass, so I caught trout on it as well. Um, Wipers and white bass will fight harder, particularly wipers pound for pound than anything else in my pond. And so therefore I wanna make sure I put it in front of some of those. What I found out right away is they'll all bite it. That's not a problem. I got bites with it really easy. So it was more a question of, hey, how durable will this thing really be? And so long story short, I went through all of that. I documented the number of catches, the number of hours I fished, Uh, anything about the bait that that I felt was good, bad, or ugly. Uh, And I keep, over the course of that year, every month or two, reporting back to the people that are working on the design. And there's about 10 other guys like me around the country doing the same thing with the same lure. Uh, Some will be in Minnesota, some will be in the Ozarks. Some other will be out west, maybe a California guy. There'll be someone in the deep south that fishes southern lakes and for sure somebody in the northeast as well. And the the reason being, again, is to get it in front of as many different species as possible and see how the bait holds up. That's how that went. So once all that was proven, the durability is there, then it goes back and they fine-tune the sizes, fine-tune the colors, and then finally give it a name and bring it to market. The other thing that we're supposed to do right before iCast, so maybe the last month or two before iCast last month, we'll get some that are in actual production colors. So I get maybe maybe a half dozen baits that don't have any packaging or anything like that. It's just the generic looking baits in a couple sizes um, with no writing or anything on them. And they're just only asking for us to get photos and video so that when that bait comes to market at iCast and, and as you guys will have seen, I did exactly what they're talking about. We had already caught a bunch of lake trout, a bunch of smallmouth, a bunch of regular trout, uh, white bass, all the fish I've been talking about, and recorded a bunch of them uh, with photographs so that they have some evidence that, hey, this bait does actually work on lots of species of fish, and we got the photos and videos to prove it. And so that's the last thing a month before I cast. we do. Then we go to ICAST and you get to see that product on the shelf and uh, and see it announced to the public and, and go through the whole spiel and, and it's kind of a big to do. For me, it's kind of like a, a point of pride. I think it's fantastic to see one because keep in mind, not all of the products that I do, a high percentage of them, don't ever make it to market or not in the form that they initially thought they would. In other words, the testing did not bear out the results that the, that the theory would uh you know would say that it would do and it just doesn't they don't make it to market so in this case the power switch definitely cut the cut the mustard and made it to market so it's kind of a neat thing uh that same basic process goes on for just about any fishing lure that or, or for any fishing lure that comes out of about any manufacturer out there some manufacturers have bigger test teams some have smaller test teams uh, some lures are only marketed for specific fish, and therefore their test teams will only be dealing with that. Uh, there's a bunch of different nuances depending on the company, but a company that's a multi-species focused company like Berkeley, uh, they want to test it tested on a lot of different species, and that's where I did my job. For the record, I also test all their hard lures, uh, things like the stunned jerkbait, I had those pre-production, hit sticks, a whole bunch of hit sticks pre-production, uh, some of the Chapos, some of the cutters, a whole bunch of the saltwater line of the hard baits, the, the juke and, uh, and the saltwater cutters, as well as the freshwater cutters. So a lot of those baits, I have been testing way ahead of the market. Some I had a full year in advance, some I don't have quite that far. Some they just send to me very close to market and say, hey, what's the story we need to tell people on how to work this? Or get 20 different pros opinions on what line this best fish is on for action wise or whatever the case might be. So that's kind of how the the lure development process goes down. And like I said, then at the end of the whole thing, they'll finally make their announcements at ICAST uh, to the world that this is coming uh, in the fall of the year. So having said all of that there's other possibilities being a product tester that I do that aren't quite so developmentally intense as say a lure is. A lure there's got a lot of components to it that are based on a lot of things that the fisherman has input on but a lot of what I do also has nothing to do with lures or, or soft plastics or anything like that more has to do with durable items like rods and reels so I spent a very long time uh, with one manufacturer and then moved to another manufacturer when it came to rods um, for a whole bunch of different reasons which are, are not part of this podcast. But I moved to another manufacturer. The first thing that second manufacturer wanted to know is what I liked about my previous manufacturer's rods and what I didn't like. And the only part they wrote down was the parts I didn't like. And then immediately that goes right into their system of hey we these are the things we need to avoid and uh and we need to make our rods not do these sorts of things so the the rod tests can be something like durability might be I'm only testing for durability so hey this is the same rod you've already seen but the guide train is completely different so we need we need you to fish with it for six months does the guide train hold up Uh, Is is it heavy or too light or are the guides too far apart or too close together? Is the stripper guide close enough or too far from the real seat? All of those things. When you change nothing but just a guide train on a rod, you change how it feels. I've done the same thing for handles or grips on the rod, for reel seats on rods. Um, I might get a whole blank with no writing on it. That's a whole rod built together with no writing, and it's up to me to say, hey, is this a medium? Is this an extra fast? What's the deal? I have to go through and figure it out. Or I'll get two rods that are outwardly identical. I have to fish them with the same reel and line, and try to figure out which of the two I like better and why and communicate that back without me knowing what's different between them. So they're looking for a very uh, objective opinion in that case uh, that I, that I might not, there might not be anything different at which point it's my job to notice that, and it might be completely different, and again, it's still my job. So it just depends on what product it is as to what level of input they need from anglers like me, not just me, but like me from around the country. Now, I'm not at a level where I fully design things for the, I wanna point that out. There There are guys you see a signature name on a rod. Uh, or a reel, or a, a, a you know a lure, whatever it might be. It's, it's the it's the you know Joe Blow pro's you know famous flipping stick. Okay, great, fantastic. He probably actually designed that rod. By the time those rods will come to a guy like me for testing, it's verifying uh, that myself and other guys around the country agree with that pro and that the other nuances of that rod are what they need to be. Keep in mind, in some cases, the pro might request something that is uh, kind of boutique-ish. It's because he's very, very good at some specific thing and Joe Average may not be capable of doing that. For instance, a skipping rod I tested one time, It was great, but unless you were very good at skipping, it was hard to control. The guy that designed that rod could control it really good. None of the rest of the test team could. So they had to dumb the rod down a little bit so that that the average buyer that buys this rod has a chance of succeeding with it because the pro that designed it was much advanced over the the average guy that's gonna buy it. So that's a key thing there. Uh, One of my favorite things to test as far as at least consumable items go, is for sure line, fishing line. And I am very, very, very picky about fishing line. And I mean very picky about fishing line. And I'm also very observant about fishing line. And i if you've listened to my podcast very much, you know that I focus really hard on accuracy and line control. And most anglers don't even realize it, but the line you have will make a big difference in both your accuracy and your ability to control the line. So a lot of cases with line, I'll get stuff that's brand new, something that isn't currently on the market at all. And they're looking for straight up knee jerk reactions. A classic one of that for me was better part of 10 years ago now was, was Berkeley Nanofill. At that time, no line of that style existed at all. of that construction style, I should say. Um, my knee-jerk reaction was, man, this stuff's weird, and I was overthrowing everything. It has so much casting distance that I was overthrowing everything, and I'm, this isn't a, a thing about nanofil. In fact, nanofil's not even on the market anymore, so don't take this as a sales pitch for nanofil, but to this day, nothing I've ever cast casts as well as nanofil, to the point where it was like the proverbial game-changer, and I hate that term. Problem with Nofil is it didn't hold knots well and it broke easily. So if if Joe Angler just was tying average knots with it, he was losing stuff left and right, and that's why it didn't uh, didn't stay on the market for more than just oh maybe five or six years at the most. It had a strong following amongst people that knew how to use it well but a lot of people that didn't read up on the nuances had a hard time with it and it finally fell off the market if i had some of it still i would still fish it in specific applications Uh, but alas it's all gone by the wayside i go through a lot of fishing line around here A lot of the cases of lines are lines they're trying to upgrade. So uh, it might be, say, Trilene XL, okay? Trilene XL has been on the market forever. It's one of the original nylon monofilament fishing lines. The XL stands for extra limp, and it is by far the most popular selling fishing line in the country. So when a company is going to update that line or upgrade that line because materials have gotten better, and that's the key thing here. You say why? There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Well yes, but if the nylon is now more UV stable, you as an angler might not notice any difference, but the line will last longer. Or maybe it's more waterproof because the nylon it's made with is more is is better at not absorbing water as quickly. Okay, fantastic. We can make our line a little bit better, but the thing we have to do is make sure we didn't sacrifice that extra limpness and the handling and not tying ability that XL is famous for. So that is a very key thing for me, and I do tons of that. And I'm working on, I think I have four different lines in my my, uh, repertoire right now that I'm working on. In all cases, I take those lines, put them on identical rods and identical reels, and I try to fish them exactly the same way. And I'll fish for 10 minutes at a time with each rod and reel. Go back and forth, keeping track of how many fish I'm catching or not catching, um, any wind knots, any abrasion, knot tying issues, things like that, and I try to keep track of them. And again, here uh, it's everything from the initial feel when I put it on the reel all the way to, okay, you fished with it for six months, how did it hold up? Everywhere in between. And they're looking at everything from, again, abrasion resistance, handleability overall, when it's stretched, does it return to its natural length? And if so, has it got curly stuff to it? If not, does the does it hold its color? Is it color fast, or or you know texture wise? Is it wind knotting excessively? Is it twisting excessively? All of the different things that lines are famous for doing or not doing, I'm always looking at. Uh, as a guy who doesn't break fish off very often. Uh, with any kind of line, mostly because I tie very fresh knots consistently, whether I've caught anything or not, there's no chance of me fishing more than about a half hour without retying whether I've snagged or caught a fish or not. Because when you when you tie a knot, it heats up the line, and it's automatically weaker right there immediately, which is why there's really no knot out there of any kind that will test 100% of the line's breaking strength, at least when it comes to a terminal knot that you're tying to a... Um, Uh, you know, a lure or a hook, something like that. So that's a really, uh, really important thing to keep in mind. I need to keep track of that for sure. Uh, So when I don't break fish off often, or when I don't often do that normally in my fishing, if I'm testing a line, I need to do it on purpose. So then I'll tie... Literally, I have a big, giant hook. I'll just tie a line to it, and then I'll hook it and pull it until it breaks and see how is this, does that line or this line break easier. I have a scale that will tell me to do that. I have a micrometer. I can check it for, for line diameter. Is it When I stretch it, is it still the same diameter as it was after it returns to its length? And, oh, by the way, did it return? So let's say Trilene XL. I can guarantee you I can take 10 foot piece of TriLin XL and I can stretch it to 11 feet long. Very, very easy to do. When it returns, it's going to be somewhere around 10 feet 2, 10 feet 1, 10 feet 2. It will not shrink all the way back to the original 10 feet you started with. In so doing, it hasn't gained any material, so obviously it has to get thinner and so it will break easier the second time that it's stretched and even easier the third, fourth, fifth time it's stretched. So, For me as a tester, I need to break it over and over again, or I need to pull on it over and over again and see exactly what it does. When I am pulling on it, I am using a rod that's bent to pull on it, Same same as you would be doing. I'm not pulling on it with my bare hands and representing a different kind of stretch than what the rod would do, okay? So that's important as well. I will also rub it on stuff. I'll purposely go out and drag a a cheap junky jig and just drag it around the rocks a bunch, just as though I would do with a really good quality jig, only in this case, I'm intentionally trying to snag it rather than trying to catch fish, or I'm intentionally trying to embrace it rather than catch fish. Uh, The reason I take a cheap jig for that is I don't care how many of my break off in the process. I might even do it with a sinker, a bell sinker that's got an eye on it that I can tie to. But at the end of the day, I'm just trying to see what happens with the line under natural abrasion. If I'm not able to demonstrate any natural abrasion, I'll literally abrade the two lines I'm testing that are are somewhat different, but I'm not sure how. I will rub them on something and see which one's abrading quicker or not quick, but basically what I'm getting at, there's a lot of blabbing, is I test every aspect I can test over a period of time and then give as much detail as I can. And all the guys around the country like me that are on the various test teams do the same thing. So it's important It's important that I, it's, in, it's important that I make sure all the time that my tests are consistent and that I'm, I'm evaluating at as an average angler would not as a guy that fishes 200 days a year and all over the country for everything else if you fish at that level you're probably capable of testing tackle uh and and i want to i'll close kind of a little bit with this for me it becomes as objective as possible you want really bad to just tell them everything they come out with is great right because it's just kind of my MO. Conversely, that's not the case, and you're not helping you or them or anybody else. So a product guy might be all giddy and excited about some technique that he or some product that he's come out with. Man, this new widget's fantastic. My initial stuff, hey, man, we're giddy. We can't wait. And then I get it and go, okay. But it does either doesn't fill a niche for me, or it's not holding up correctly, or they're not all behaving the same. Uh, they're not consistent. Whatever the case might be, and I have to give them the bad news, and that's very important that I be maintain a, a uh, open-minded approach to it uh, all the time, and that. Is the, and communicate it clearly otherwise the products do not get better and in the long run sales slump and in the long run guys like me need to find a new job so it's important that I be as candid as possible with all the engineers about what I feel with the product how, how does this really apply is there really a need in the market for this and whatever In a lot of the cases it may also be with a specific lure I'm going to throw out I'm gonna close with this A lot of people say, oh, well, so-and-so company knocked that lure off from so-and-so other company. Well, if the other company's lure, the guy that invented it, was perfect, there would be no need in the market for it. But if something out there is pretty good, but anglers are modifying it on a regular basis to use it consistently, there is room for improvement. If there is known weaknesses in it, there is room for improvement. So, it's not necessarily that any manufacturer knocked off any other manufacturer in the same way that a Honda Accord did not necessarily, uh, or that's probably not a good example. No, let's say a Toyota Corolla did not knock off a, a Honda a Civic. Okay? they are two different versions of the same thing. Whichever manufacturer takes what they think is a better approach to the same idea, and they go from there. In the case of baits, same thing. Well, this company put, you know, poor hook hangers or in a wrong location or the bait's not quite heavy enough so it wants to spin when it's retrieved or the blades are too thin. So we have room to improve that lure, make it better than it is. Uh, and, and then bring it to market as a improved version thereof. And you see a ton of that these days and everyone yells knockoff. But what you have to keep in mind is in pretty much all cases, regardless of manufacturer, they have done what they believe is the best job to improve on whatever that original bait's weaknesses were, or they would not have brought it to market. So, Product testing is one of the favorite parts of what I do. I've done it for a long time, and I hope to do it long after Fishful Thinker television uh, sails off into the sunset. And after 15 years of Fishful Thinker, there's just no telling how long I continue to do this. But I would love to be able to be a product tester or development guy or design guy for the rest of my fishing days because it's very inspiring to me. Uh, I love the open-minded part of it, I love the, the analytical part of it, and I always want people to catch more fish, and if you have better products, you'll do it. So. If you guys would like to follow the conversation please do so subscribe to this podcast uh, at fishful thinker on facebook instagram or tiktok especially our youtube channel guys uh, big big part of what we do it's a labor of love and uh, a couple million views more than 600 videos check that out and of course you can check us out on altitude sports and entertainment or world fishing network uh, 52 weeks a year so thanks for tuning in this has been fishful thinker the podcast